We're going to read this morning from Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. So if you have a chance, uh, turn in your Bible. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. And if you're able, I would ask if you would stand for the reading of the word. Okay, beginning in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over the one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me. For I found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, John. Uh, If today is your first uh, Sunday with us, either online or in person, uh, I want to welcome you. And we are really glad that you're stepping into church life um, and exploring the gospel with us maybe you're already a believer maybe you're not you're trying to sort through christianity and um, we're just glad that you're doing that with us Um, today is a so i'm I'm glad today's a big day at our house um, and i'm glad we're baptizing in the second service i'm not sure i'll be able to do this twice if it were in the other order Uh, yeah i'm just trying to compose myself and stay focused that's a really big day um when, when you've been praying for a, a child for 14 years, you know. And some of you have adult children who you're still praying for, either who have wandered or never trusted Christ, even though you want, want that more than anything for them. So it's just, it just hits us deep. So, you're going to be encouraged today when you're reminded that Jesus is the friend of sinners. I want to talk to you about that. Uh, Last Sunday, we talked about expanding the invitation list, going out to the highways and the hedges to invite everyone to feast on the Savior, and to especially invite those who cannot return the favor, those who are in need. Because when we do that, we reenact the gospel for ourselves we authenticate that this is the gospel we believe when we when we host a meal for someone who can't when we help someone who can't we when we give ourselves to someone who can't return the favor that's what grace is if your conception of grace is anything other than your utter inability to return the favor it's not grace today though the invitation list goes Uh, expands even further not further out but down 
down in terms of virtue and morality, at least perceived virtue and morality, to tax collectors and sinners. Because see, if you're blind or lame, that may not be your fault. But to be a shady tax collector, cheating on your own people, working the system with the Roman authorities, someone chooses to do that. Someone is culpable in that. And the word sinner here in verses 1 and 2 refers to those who've clearly chosen a way of life. So tax collectors and sinners, those who live unfaithful to God's law, a way of life that in the eyes of the Pharisees was worthy of judgment and separation. In the eyes of the Pharisees, it was worthy of judgment and separation, not friendship or compassion. But Jesus is the friend of sinners, and scandalously so. I want to show you three things that that I think come out of, of the gospel story, three things that made Jesus an effective witness for God. You, you, if you've been a believer for any length of time, probably have this thing inside of you, like, I want to be a witness for Christ. I want to be an effective witness. Jesus, three things that marked his life that made him an effective witness for God. Uh, take a risk, be a friend, and share a meal. Three really simple thoughts that are hard to execute not because they're hard things to do, but because we, we just don't, well, I'll stay on it. Take a risk, be a friend, share a meal. Number one, take a risk. All right, so in a world where tax collectors were hated and sinners were mocked, Jesus is going to risk, what I mean by take a risk is risk your reputation. Jesus is going to risk his reputation by letting them draw near to him. Look back at verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners, this is Luke 15 verse 1, the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to, they were all drawing near to him, a large group of them drawing near to him, coming close to him. He was letting them come close to He was inviting their closeness. He was sharing conversation with them, being willing to talk to them. Um, Notice that the text says, they're drawing near to hear. See that? They're drawing near to hear and listen to him. The Pharisees can't hear him right now. They're grumbling, the text says. They're grumbling. Like, see, I told you he doesn't have any standards. Deepening their wrong assumptions and gossiping about him. But tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to listen and to hear him. Jesus, is what I want you to see in the first point, Jesus was all the time risking his reputation for the sake of the gospel, right? Samaritan woman, a marginalized ethnicity, a gender different than Jesus, she's a woman, he's a man, She's been divorced five times, and now she's with a sixth man who probably doesn't want to marry her. That was a seriously risky encounter for Jesus to sit down at Jacob's well and have a lengthy conversation with her. That was a risky encounter for him. Or 
I was reading again in the Gospels this morning that there's this Pharisee named Simon. You don't learn his name until the end of the story, but there's this Pharisee who's hosting a meal for Jesus. He seems like he's more interested than the average Pharisee. And this prostitute comes in off the street because she senses there's this thing going on and she finds out Jesus is there and she comes in to the what is you know, fairly natural to understand as kind of a public context. It's not like she was breaking the rules by coming in to the meal, though she wasn't invited, clearly. And Pharisee, uh, Pharisee Simon starts having a conversation with himself because she came in and she's got this alabaster ointment and she starts, she kind of breaks down and starts repenting and worshiping Jesus as if he's the Messiah, the Son of God. And there's this thing going on and Simon the Pharisee is like, wait a minute, he's letting her touch him? Jesus was risking his reputation all the time. And then he ends up forgiving her of her sin and her lifestyle and her misplaced desires, whether on money or other things. Or think about the Last Supper. Think about the Last Supper. When Jesus knew his hour had come, he rose from the table and he laid aside his reputation and began to wash the feet of his disciples in an incredibly memorable moment of humility. And then what was the final sacrifice of his life? What was the final sacrifice of his life if it wasn't a risk of reputation? In his passion and on the cross, he is accused, misunderstood, and mocked. His reputation is literally on the line, and it is deeply stained. His reputation was stained just like the blood drying on his skin. I mean, his whole life from beginning to end is a willingness to be misunderstood and to take a risk for the sake of the gospel. He he comes from heaven to earth to risk his reputation. So here's the question for you this morning. Would you be willing to risk your reputation for the gospel? Would you risk your status by talking to people that you could easily be misunderstood by being seen with them? When I'm not willing to risk my reputation for the gospel, it's usually because of self-righteousness. I'm just telling you, that's, that's where I'm at. When I'm not willing to risk my reputation for the gospel, most of the time it's because of pride and self-righteousness because Pharisees, you know, Pharisees, we need tax collectors and sinners to feel good about ourselves, to kind of confirm our self-righteousness. Be careful with that. Ask yourself, why am I not willing to take a risk and be a friend? What's keeping you from doing this? That's the first thought. Jesus was doing it all the time. By the way, I'm not talking about putting yourself in really shady, questionable context where, well, we'll come back, we'll we'll come to that in just a second. We'll come to that in just a second. Okay, so number one, take a risk. Number two, be a friend. Make a new friend. Be a friend to someone. 
Um, Look at verses 1 and 2 again. This man receives sinners. This is one thing that the Pharisees got right. This man receives sinners. He welcomes them. He's friends with them. Jesus receives sinners. Think about Jesus' example of befriending the ungodly and the undesirable or, or just those who are hard to love because their lives are so complicated. Okay, if you're thinking about applying this concept, it's, it's not just the, the gross immorality that I'm talking about. It's, it's just even those who are just hard to love because their lives are so complicated and their sin struggles are so deep. And many of you are connected to people like this in your own family, in your neighborhoods, your coworkers, and you're trying to figure out how to do this. The homosexual couple across the street, the family where you know domestic abuse is happening, or the new neighbors who don't parent their kids like you want them, like you would do it, and so it kind of keeps you at a nice safe distance. Clearly, we are supposed to follow Jesus' example in befriending those who need him, and yet we feel this tension to live a separate and holy life. Now that's hard. I want to admit that today. That is very hard. Like we're supposed to follow Jesus' example in befriending others, uh, maybe who are not like us, who have particular sin struggles, and yet we feel this tension. Uh, the Bible itself calls us to choose our friends wisely, right? Bad company corrupts good character, and the Psalms and the Proverbs repeat this theme over and over again. You've got to choose your friends wisely. So we feel this tension. So how do we befriend sinners? That's in quotes. It's not as if you're not a sinner. How do we befriend sinners like Jesus without sacrificing virtue? Let me give you five quick kind of helps on this, okay? So how do we live out, how do we live in this tension? Let me roll through five ideas that will help us to navigate this. Number one, remember your greatest sin, you have to believe this, that your greatest sin threat is internal, not external. If you don't think this, you will continue to separate yourself in a way that's deceptive. So it's kind of, it's just self-deceived. The consistent biblical story emphasizes that the heart is desperately wicked and and our sin struggle the greatest sin struggle we have the greatest threat to our well-being is not out there it's in here because that seed that germ of sin still lives in us and it grows and if you're not fighting it it will be yeah so just don't think don't think of that out there as the greatest enemy. Now, there is the great enemy, the one who prowls about the earth, the prince of the power of the air, and he is a massive threat, and I'm not discounting that. I'm just saying, realize that there's this internal, your deepest sin struggle is in here. It's, it's not out there. That'll reorient whether or not this is sort of an us versus them perspective. Number two. Avoid context. I said avoid, uh, yeah, so avoid your, avoid your greatest temptations. 
Avoid context that will appeal to your greatest temptations. So a recovering alcoholic probably shouldn't say yes with the group of guys who are going out after work for a few drinks. But just, that's just not a good call for him. He needs to avoid his greatest temptations. But there's so many other ways that you can befriend people. It doesn't have to be around alcohol. Avoid those. You've got to know yourself on this. Avoid your greatest temptations. Number three, and this is really big. This is really big. Strict separatism does not equal true holiness. Now, you might not agree with this at first, but I would love to press on this one with you. Because those of us with a more fundamentalistic background actually believe this is not accurate. We believe strict separatism is, is good for us. I just want to challenge that this morning and say strict separatism does not equal true holiness. How are you acquiring true holiness? That's the question. You acquire true holiness by faith in the merits of the perfect righteousness of Christ, and when you get dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne, then that begins to change you from the inside out. And again, it's work that's going on in here. And so, yes, there's a degree to which we should distance ourselves from sin and, and separate ourselves and, and hear the call to holiness but don't think of that as the means by which you acquire personal righteousness. It is not. That's not the gospel. So I, I would love to press in on this. Those of you who want to talk further about it, let's keep thinking about this. How do we get true holiness? If, if we're thinking wisely and rightly in terms of the gospel, we will get a freedom that will allow us to step into the place where we were just before we met Christ. Number, number four, uh, I think this is number four. All right, this is, this is really deep theology, ready? Plan for messiness. Like it's gonna be messy. It's gonna be complicated. You just have to decide that this is worth giving up a night watching Netflix for to step into someone's world because it's going to be messy. It's going to get complicated. You're going to get entangled. You're going to get phone calls and texts at 1030, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night, and it's just not going to be easy, but it's worth it. Plan for the messiness from a place of a shared sin struggle like Know in your heart and mind, I'm just as sinful as they are. I shouldn't let my behavior, which looks more religious and righteous, keep me from stepping into the messiness of their sinful life. Some of us have been distanced from this for way too long. Here's the, here's the last thing. Be willing, like your hero, like your Savior, like your Lord and Master, be willing to risk your reputation. And don't worry about being misunderstood. I 
What if, what, if, what if a neighbor sees me? What if somebody misunderstands what I'm doing? What if my coworker thinks this? What if, I mean, just, you could do that all day long and never move off of this first step to go and be a friend to someone. One of my favorite lines in the, in the, in the gospel story, one of my favorite lines, um, I'm not gonna ask you to turn there because I'm gonna have you flip in just a second somewhere else, but listen, one of my favorite lines is in Luke 7 where this Jesus is talking about John the Baptist and how they're connected and, and who Jesus is and, and, and he says, uh, this is what people are saying about him. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, he's a glutton and a drunkard. This is what the Pharisees were saying. This is what people, the religious establishment, the elite, uh, and, and probably others, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Luke seven twenty nine. Jesus says, everybody's calling me People are calling me names. They're calling me names. They're saying I'm a glutton. I'm a drunkard. I'm a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And you know what he responds with at the very end of that section? He says, wisdom is justified in the way she lives. I'm not worried about you misunderstanding me. I am the embodiment of the wisdom of God. I'm not a glutton. I'm not a drunkard, but I don't have to defend myself. I am the friend of sinners. Is that so bad? To be the friend of sinners. Like we need we need more of this in our lives. Here's the third and final point. So take a risk, be a genuine friend, and then third, this, and this is the place where you can execute all this, share a meal, invite someone, invite a family, invite a person into your home for a meal. You're not gonna, you're not gonna bring a certain kind of person in your home. Who, wait, wh whose home is this? Share a meal with someone who cannot return the favor. Share a meal with someone who might risk your reputation. Now dial back out here to the larger context and, and, and well, why I'm there, if you're not quite ready to do it at your house, take someone to lunch with you and buy their meal. Just take a first step there. Dial back out here to the larger context for a moment, and as Luke's gospel's unfolding, watch this. So, so, so look back into chapter 14 with me. Go back to 1425. As Luke's gospel is unfolding, there's this accumulation of, of people who are starting to follow Jesus, so that Luke says in 1425, now great crowds accompanied him. That's, th th this is happening as the story is building. People, more and more people are interested in Jesus, more and more people are checking him out. What's he saying? What's he doing? Great crowds are accompanying him. We're gonna come back to that next week on Jesus' answer to this large gathering, but for now, look at, now that's, that's the context here. Now drop back into 15. One, the tax collectors and sinners are in those, those large groups of people. They're drawing near to him. And that's when the Pharisees say, this man 
receives sinners and what? And eats with them. All right, that's, that's where we are on this third point. He eats with them. He shares a meal with them. Okay, now we can turn back to Luke 5. If you would go there with me, I want to I show you something. Uh, I don't want you to miss this. Turn back to Luke chapter 5 and verse 27. This is where Jesus calls Levi the tax collector. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, doing his thing, running his operation, and he said to him, follow me. And Luke just kind of shortens the story for us to make the point, and what did he do? He started following Jesus. And leaving everything... He rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was, look at this, there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and, scri and their scribes were grumbling at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why do you and why, do, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, because those who are well, they don't need any help. It's those who are sick that need help. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now connect that line with the very concept of a meal. Why is Jesus willing to share a meal and, and eat with people as an expression of calling people to follow him in repentance and faith? Like why, let me ask it this way. Why doesn't Jesus make his strategy, this would be far more efficient, to roll from town to town, it just roll into town, preach the good news, you know, set, up a, set up a little deal, a little station, a little kiosk, preach the good news, and then go to the next town. Like, why not make this strategy more efficient and, and keep things moving? Why is he taking time to sit down and eat with people eat with them face to face and risk his reputation with ungodly, gluttonous, drunk tax collectors. And look, in the text says this, uh, and a large company of them, like their whole, their whole thing, all the sensual immorality that is attending this greedy corporate gathering thing. Why is Jesus willing to sit down and do this with such questionable people? Here's the answer. Because sharing a meal with someone is how you close the distance. It's how you show friendship and interest. And it was especially important if there was a conflict or estrangement in a relationship so that a meal would open the door to reconciliation, 
a meal open, not just in, first, not just in, the, in the Mediterranean world in the first century, though it's especially true there of that culture and, and way of life, that a meal would be a place where you would open up a conversation for reconciliation because of estrangement, because of brokenness. It is true then, but it's not just true in, in the Middle East. It's true all over the world. People have meals to foster the reconciling of conflict and relationship. Now think about this, right? Do the math. Are you, are, are you with me? What did Jesus come to do? What did he come on earth to do? He came to bring reconciliation. So why is his life characteristically from one table to the next? He doesn't just show up and preach. He comes and settles in and sits down and has meals and has conversations. Why? Because he's trying to reconcile God and man. Because he's the, he's the emissary. He's the ambassador. He's the embodiment of this reconciling moment. So he sits down at a table with people who need repentance, who need rescue. He's sitting at the table and really getting anywhere with people who don't think they need him. That's why he wants to eat with tax collectors and sinners, because they need repentance, because they know their brokenness. When Jesus shared meals with tax collectors and sinners, he was saying, these are my people. This is why I came. You guys don't, he's saying to the Pharisees, you don't need me, and I can't convince you that you need me, but they know they need me. I'm going to eat with them. I'm going to tarnish my reputation with them. I'm going to let the word spread that he's a glutton and a drunkard. Now you're ready for the two stories. Back in Luke 15. So after he hears the Pharisees grumbling and criticizing and displaying their self-righteousness with this man receives sinners and eats with them. After that, he tells them a parable. Listen to this. Which one of you having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them out there in the open country would just let that particular sheep wander forever. Now you wouldn't do that if you had a flock of 100. You would say to your son, hey, you got this flock, I'm out. And you'd go and you'd keep walking, you'd keep trekking, you'd keep hiking until you found it and then you would wrap its legs and you'd get them over your shoulder and you'd come home and you would rejoice that, you would rejoice that one of your sheep was found. And that's what God is doing right now. But you can't see it and you can't hear it. This is what he's saying to the Pharisees. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous person who don't want to eat a meal with me and hear the beauty of the gospel. See the beauty of the gospel. And in the next story, what woman who has 10 silver coins, if she would lose one coin, wouldn't light a lamp and sweep the house. And look what it says, look at, look at this line, and seek diligently, mark, mark that in your Bible. If you're, if you're trying to get a sense of urgency in your life for taking the gospel to those who have not yet heard, mark that phrase, seek diligently. 
She would seek diligently until she found the coin. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors. They're like, you're not going to believe this. I found the coin that has been lost for so long. Just so I tell you, there's a joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. What's the point of those two stories? The point of those two stories is that God passionately and indefatigably and tirelessly, unendingly pursues sinners. That's what he does. That is who God is. And he also pursues Pharisees. That's what the next story is about, the parable of the two sons. That's about pursuing Pharisees and prodigals, right? That's for another day. God passionately pursues sinners. What would please God more than if our church, fam, like us, me and you, just, we just kept praying about that one person who was an unlikely person to be our friend or for us to be seen with or for us to help, and we just keep praying for that friend, praying for that lostness, pray, and we passionately, in prayer and in our schedules, like making time to do this, went after those who do not yet know Christ. I think we're out of time, but listen, one last thing. As you keep thinking about your own personal witness and being an ev just personal evangelism, I want to encourage you to practice all three of these things as you move toward the meal. Take a risk, befriend someone, and either buy them a meal or a cup of coffee or invite them into your house. And just let's just see what the gospel, I mean, it, it could be a train wreck at first, but man, wouldn't that be amazing? I mean, we're, real, we're really living fairly boring lives, some of us. Wouldn't it be amazing if this gospel train wreck happened right in front of us and we had a chance to speak into it and show up on the scene and, and do some first aid in the name of Christ. I want to pray for that this morning. Will you pray with me? Lord, we, we have received your, your grace. We, we have received your mercy. Please, Grant that it not stop with us. I keep hearing Katie's words. You either live with a purpose, you either live with the purpose, or you, or you live without a purpose. Like God, give purpose. God, give purpose to our lives in being willing to speak, share, give good news, the one who's come to save. We pray this all in his name. Let's sing in response, sing in faith this morning.